So how many of you like, how many of you like pizza? Okay. How many of you like cold pizza? And how many of you are looking forward to trying it because I'm going to preach long enough it's going to be cold? <laughs> Joe, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Joe's in the back shaking his head. <laughs> so Galatians, you've been walking through Galatians. Um, how many of you have ever read the letter that Paul wrote to Galatian churches before? All right. Of all the letters that Paul wrote, this is by far, to me, the most angry Paul has ever been. When you read the writing of Paul to the churches of Galatia, this is an angry man. He is upset, righteously so. He is frustrated. Some of the language that he uses in this letter appears nowhere else in his writings. Um... And his primary focus, as Pastor Cliff has been teaching through this process, is is that there's no other gospel, right? Paul comes into the Galatia area, preaches the gospel of Jesus. And then after Paul leaves, false teachers come in and they start teaching another gospel. The idea that there's more to being saved than just knowing Jesus. And these people are being persuaded. They're being persuaded that I need Jesus, plus I need these set of rules, I need these regulations, right? I need those through circumcision to finish the deal. And Paul writes back and says, you foolish Galatians, right? Because the whole point of the letter is there's no other gospel, right? There's no other gospel. There's no other way to be saved. And Paul has, has hammered that theme through the first those first three chapters, as a matter of fact, in chapter three, if you remember, he said, who bewitched you, right? Who has confused you? Who has come in and who's done this number on you to where you're thinking something else? And here's the thing. This letter was written, you know, 2,000 years ago, practically, right? And the reality is that struggle that these churches had 2,000 years ago is a struggle that has plagued the American church forever. And that idea is that you are saved by grace. Amen, church. And you are saved by grace through faith. Amen, church. And that is not of yourselves, right? And then somehow after that, we also put in all these rules and these regulations to say, if you do any of these, you're probably not a Christian. Anybody remember that church, right? Over and over again. And here's the thing. That church is still thriving in North America. Where it is. Jesus saves. Absolutely. We take his grace. We accept it by faith. Right. And then all of a sudden we have all these things. Listen. If you're a Christian. You don't do this. You don't say that. You don't go to this place. You don't drink that beverage. You don't eat that food. Oh you don't celebrate that holiday. Oh you can't wear those kinds of clothes. You would never ever have a tattoo. Right. Your hair should be this length. Right. We had all those rules. And all that is. Is exactly what Paul is addressing here in Galatians. In this letter. Is there's nothing else except for Jesus when it comes to being saved. Can I get an amen? And listen, that is an incredibly difficult thing for us because we are Americans. We love to earn what we get, especially the greatest generation in the world, right? We love to know that we pull up our bootstraps, we work hard, and we get we get what we deserve, right? We get what we deserve. The problem is the gospel doesn't work that way because if we got what we deserve, church, do you know what we would get? 
Yeah, we would spend an eternity separated from God. The gospel is so anti what is normal thinking to most people. And listen, it is one of the, if not the greatest lie in church is to convince you that knowing Jesus will never be enough to be saved. There are all of these external things you have to do or external things you cannot do, right? And still be a Christian. Listen, the reality is this. How many of you have raised children? How many, how many of you have had children that there are days you've been proud of them? And how many of you have had children where there are days that you swear you wish they didn't have your last name? Right? Of course. Of course. Did it change that they were your child? Yes or no? No. Why is it that you and I can think that way about our children, but you don't believe for a second that God could think that way about you? How many of you in here, how many of you online love Jesus? Let me hear you say amen. How many of you, um, be honest, how many of you have had really good days in following the Lord? Really good days following the Lord. I mean, you've done really well. Come on, be honest. How many of you have had good days in honoring Jesus? Amen. And how many of you have had days that were eh, not so good? And how many of you have had days that were just like, after you've known Jesus, he would be embarrassed to death to call you his child? Yeah, for sure. Hey, Ray, I didn't hear, I didn't hear an amen. Harry, thank you. Thank you, right? We all have days like that. And why is it, why is it we would never think it would change our relationship with our own child, but somehow we believe that God would change his opinion about us? Right? We want to believe God to heal cancer. We want to believe God to give us a job. We want to believe in God that he'll, that he'll protect our children. We want to believe in God for all these miraculous things. And we somehow think that's an exercise of faith. But the very core thing that God wants us to believe in is that Jesus' death was satisfactory to cover your debt. And it's capable of lasting forever. What an affront to God in our faith that we want to trust him for the miraculous. But when it comes to the simple, the most basic component of what God came to do, we don't want to believe it. So we add these other things. And we don't always do it for ourselves. We do it for other people, right? We do it for those children of God that misbehave. And all Paul says in this letter over and over and over again is that you can't be saved by anything external. You can only be saved by the work of Jesus. Amen, church? And so he continues that narrative into chapter 4, right? And so if you've got your Bibles... Uh, your phones, whatever. If not, we're going to read them here on the screen, right? But here's what Paul says in chapter 4 of Galatians. He writes this, right? And again, listen, the chapter and verses in the Bible, they are helpful to us when we read them. They're helpful to us when we refer to them. But when Paul wrote, he simply wrote a letter, right? He didn't, he didn't stop at the end of chapter 3 and go, I think this is chapter 4. We added those hundreds of years later, Right? In our study of scripture. But this is one long narrative. Right? If you go from chapter 3. <clears throat> so this is a continual thought from chapter 3. He says what I am saying. Is that as long as the heir is a child. He is no different from a slave. Although that heir. That child. Owns the whole estate. 
He says he's subject, that that child, right, is subject to guardians. That word guardian is actually referencing a slave, right? He is subject to slaves and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, he says, we were in slavery under the basic principles. Some of your Bibles will say elemental, right? Are the elements, right? The basic principles of the world. So we're just going to cover those first three verses, Mike, right? So how many of you like a plan? Have a plan, keep a plan. How many of you are loosey-goosey, don't care about a plan? Okay, you're going to love cold pizza, right? All right? But listen, and how many of you have ever heard this thing? Those who fail to plan, plan to... You guys heard that before? Man, I used to hate that. I used to hate that. I remember going to Bible college, and that was one, thing, one of the things our professors always said, right? He who plans to fail, fails... Or he who fails to plan, plans to fail. I hated that saying. Because I, I'm not a big plan guy, right? I'm sort of get up in the morning and let's just sort of see where the current goes, right? Anybody with me? Yeah, I like that. My wife, on the other hand, she is a planner. She is a get up in the morning and find a to-do list on the table and then following that to-do list because that becomes her plan of the day. How many of you are like that? Yeah, yeah, right? Listen, so the one thing that stood out to me in these first seven verses of chapter four is was the word plan, right? And so in the first three chapters there, Paul describes this story, right? Again, he's referring about spiritually those of us, right, as Gentiles who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, online, in here, say amen. So he's talking to us. And here's what he says in describing this, this tension or this struggle in regard to the gospel, right? He says that a child, right, in a household who stands to inherit everything eventually, right? But while he's a child, he's no better than a slave, right? So picture, picture in a, just picture a, a wealthy person, right? And again, it's a culture that we can't relate to, so let's relate it to us, right? So picture a culture of a wealthy person with one male child, right? And that one child, right, according to the will, will inherit everything. Does that make sense to you? But when that heir, a parent, is just a child, right, what rights does he have as a child? Zero. Everybody say zero. Right? So as a matter of fact, Paul says that child is no different than a what? Than a slave. He has no more access to the inheritance, no more access, right, to the authority, no more privilege or access to the privilege than a slave does. He's simply a child, meaning that he is bound, right, as a child to these realities, right? That's what he says. Even though that child stands to be an heir eventually as a child, he has no access to it. He is imprisoned or enslaved by those elemental or those ABCs of growing up. Right? Mike, bring verse, verse 3 back up if you don't mind. Listen to what this says. 
So also, he's now speaking to us who know Jesus as Gentiles. So also when we were children, meaning we have no access to privilege, no access to the inheritance, right? We're no better than a slave. He says, when we were in that condition spiritually, listen to what he says. You and I were in what? Come on, everybody say it. We were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. So this word basic principles, elemental or elementary in some of your Bibles, is the idea of basically putting things in a row, right? So my three and a half year old grandson uh, was at our house for Christmas because at some point in time, Christmas becomes about that generation, right? So he's got presents and he's opening. My, my three and a half year old grandson, almost four, I guess I should say he's four, right? He'll be four in a few weeks, right? My four year old grandson is a strange child. He's very quirky. So when he got a present this year, he would unwrap it. He would, he would lay the present down. He would pick up his wrapping paper and he would go put it in the trash can. And then he would come back and he would look at his present and he shoved it in a shelf. And he did that for every present he got. By the time he got done unwrapping gifts, there was no wrapping paper on the floor because he put it in the trash after every time. And he had stacked all of his presents in order on the bookshelf. Right? He's a quirky little kid, right? But he had everything in order, right? He says, Paul says this, when you and I were not followers of Jesus, we're just like the children who stand to inherit everything. Before we inherit it, we are bound, right, to these elemental, right, or these ABCs, right, of the world. Children, in that culture, we're bound to certain elemental principles. If you're a child, you don't have access, access to the privilege of, of being the owner of the entire inheritance, right? There are things you have to go through, right? So here's what he says, right? And this is what I wrote in, in my notes, right? And that is this, the world has a plan for you, right? The world has a plan for you. Right, And here's the plan. The plan for all of us is to stay connected or enslaved. Because remember, he says, we were in slavery, right? A bondservant, right? In chains with no authority. He says, you and I were bound to the elemental forces of the world. So what are those forces of the world? Well, here's the basic concept of what he's talking about. How many of you have ever heard of karma? Right? How many of you have ever heard of the idea of knocking on wood for good luck? How many of you have ever heard about never opening an umbrella in a, in a room inside, right? How many of you have ever heard of breaking a mirror and you'll have seven years of bad luck, right? How many of you have ever heard about a black cat, black cat crossing in front of the street or throwing salt over your shoulder, right? Listen, all of those activities... All of those activities sort of refer to this principle, and that is this, right? That if you do A, you get B, right? If a black cat goes in front of your vehicle, right, that's what kind of luck? That's bad luck, right? You never want to break a mirror, because if you do, you get seven years of what? 
right? So all of those things are based upon this elemental, right? This elemental thing that people find themselves in bondage to. And that's this idea that you get what you deserve or what goes around comes around. Or if you do A, you get B, right? It's the idea that if I do something, I get something. And here's the thing. The world has a plan for all of us. And that's to keep us in bondage to that principle, right? I want to read scripture. So I got the scriptures backward, Mike. So Genesis 3.15 is for second point. Thank God I don't have a bunch of verses. And the one in Colossians, the next one, is for this point. So Paul uses this word in another letter. In, in the letter he wrote to the churches of Colossae, in chapter 2, he writes it this way. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive, right? Nobody enslaves you through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Don't let people, listen, don't let people enslave you to the idea of the world instead of the idea of Jesus. The Bible says in, in Galatians, it is for freedom. Everybody say the word freedom. Not American freedom, but it is for freedom that Jesus has set us free. Somebody say amen. The world doesn't want you to live in that freedom. The world wants you to throw salt over your shoulder. The world wants you to knock on wood. The world wants you to never break a mirror. The world wants you to live in the idea that if you do A, if you do A, you're now in charge of what you get because you'll get B, right? The early bird gets the worm. Right, Nobody ever succeeds who doesn't get up at 6 a.m., right? We build these kind of things because that's the way the world wants you to be enslaved, right? Now listen, are there certain basic principles that when people are children that you want to impart to your children, like work hard, right? You want to teach them those kind of things, right? But when we live our life spiritually with that idea, guess who's in charge of our eternal destiny with that mindset? We are. All of a sudden, the gospel isn't what saves us. What saves us is who? Me. Isn't it sneaky and amazing how Satan works? You see, my guess is he convinced some of you online, in here, that you're in charge of your destiny. That you're in charge of making sure you've got a schedule, you've got a plan, you're disciplined. And you know what? You've convinced yourself that your spirituality is somehow based on your performance to the elemental principles of the world. And here's what the Bible says. All that's done is enslaved you to a mindset that you're God. That you're in charge. And Paul says, you've been bewitched. That doesn't mean a person shouldn't be disciplined. That doesn't mean a person shouldn't work hard. That doesn't mean a person who has a plan is that way. But there are so many people that have taken the mindset and now that's become the way they believe spiritually. Because, and I can tell you the great test. I can tell you those people are always the most judgmental people of other people. Because they watch the person who doesn't have a plan and they watch the person that doesn't doesn't believe in A equals B. Right? They don't buy it. And those people that have the plan, that are working hard, that are disciplined, they're almost always incredibly judgmental toward other people. 
Well, why aren't they like that? Why aren't they doing that? Why won't they be more like this? And why aren't they more like that? And they go home and they're discouraged and they're disappointed because they're always expecting more out of people. Why? Because they've convinced themselves, whether they believe it or not, they're in charge of their own destiny. And here's the thing. If you're in charge of your own destiny, you're headed straight for hell because you cannot save yourself. Amen? Paul says, the world has a plan for you. Paul writes it this way in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Colossians. He says, since you died with Christ. Listen, if you know Jesus this morning online in here, do you know that you've died with Jesus? Say amen. Do you know that the death on Calvary's cross you have become connected to as a believer in Jesus Christ? Can I get an amen? You've died to your sins. He said, you've died with Christ to what? He says, you've died with Christ to the what? Basic principles. That thing that the world says you need to be enslaved to, you died to it. He said, the basic principle of this world, why? As though you still belong to it. Listen to what he says. Do you submit to its rules? Listen to some of the rules that the plan of the world. He says, don't handle this. Don't taste that. Don't touch this. Man, it's crazy to me how many rules that Christians have employed in churches to try to convince others that you're saved or not saved. Right? I mean, I went to Bible college in 1982. And man, you didn't go to Bible college and have a tattoo. I mean, if you went to a Christian church in the 80s and you had a tattoo, you know what people in the church said about you? You weren't a Christian. Right? I mean, if you went to a lot of churches and did some of those things, Right, If you went to a sports bar in 1982 as a Christian at Bible college to watch a sports game, a basketball game, a football game. If you went to a sports bar in 1982, you know what they would have said about me at the Bible college in 1982? You're not a Christian. You see, the principles of the world, those basic principles. He says, if you know Jesus, you've died to that principle. You've died to the plan of the world. Because guess what? Your plan can't save you. And all of these rules of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. He says this. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on what? Human commands and teachings. And here's the thing. No human command or teaching can save you or me. He says, instead, such regulations indeed, listen to this. He said, these regulations have an appearance of what? With appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value, he says, in restraining sensual indulgence. See, all these rules that we put out there for churches and for church people to try to curb their bad behavior... It doesn't even work. It doesn't even work. So here's what I want you to know today about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world has a plan for you, and that plan is for you to earn your salvation, to follow the rules. Listen, you throw the salt over your shoulder, right? You do, listen, the early bird gets the worm. You make sure that if you do this, you're going to get that. Listen, the problem is that doesn't even work because if it actually worked, people who eat well and go to the gym four days a week would never have breast cancer, right? They'd never die of a heart attack, right? It would never, ever happen. And yet, does it happen? Yes or no? Yeah. People who do everything right have died in car wrecks because somebody behind them was doing everything wrong. If doing A always prevented B, there would be such less tragedy in the world. How many parents who've raised their children incredibly well 
have suffered, have suffered that eternal pain of losing a child. Lots of people. Because why? The basic principles of the world don't work. And yet the world's desire is to enslave you in the idea that you're in charge. That if I follow the equation, I'm going to be saved. The problem is, with that, is that thing only has an appearance of wisdom. And an appearance of looking like a Christian. It doesn't even work. So Paul goes on to the second thing and he says this. He says God has a plan. He says God has a plan. So we're just going to read one verse here. Listen to verse 4. right? So the world has this plan to enslave you. But God has a plan. But when the time he said had fully come. Right. This, this idea of fully come is the idea that it's been completed, that there's this strategy of A, B, C, whatever, all the way through. And he says that plan has been completely completed. He says when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, he says, to redeem those or buy back those who were enslaved to the law that we might receive the full right of sons. Now. I went to Bible college, and I'd been a Christian for 11 months. I knew nothing about the Bible. I walk into my first class, biblical class. It was called Israel's Birth and Development. It was about Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. First day of the class, teacher tells us, we're going to start with the most important verse in the Bible. And he reads this verse, Genesis 3.15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and he will strike his heel. I've been a Christian for 11 months and the guy gets up and reads that verse says it's the most important verse in the Bible. And I thought, holy cow, I don't know anything about the Bible then because that verse didn't make any sense to me, right? And then he began to teach it in context. And it took me 20 years to believe it, but I am convinced today it's the most important verse in the Bible. And if, and you know the context, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, serpent tempts Eve, she eats of the tree. Eve then tempts Adam and Adam eats of the fruit. Right? And then God shows up and says, what's happening here? Right? And Adam says, the woman God you gave me, she did this to me. Right? And then when God asked Eve, he said, well, the serpent tempted me. And then when God went to the serpent, Genesis 3.15 says this is what he said to the serpent. And basically, if you boil Genesis 3.15 down, it's God walking, it's God walking up to the devil going, fine. You want to fight? We're going to fight. And here's how this is going to go. This woman, is going to produce an offspring who's a male, and he is going to destroy you. Now, you're going to inflict some pain, but he's going to destroy you. That was back in Genesis 3.15. Depending on how old you think the earth is, that's either four to 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 years ago. But it was a long time. I have been without internet in my house for nine days. And not only have I been without internet for nine days, that means I've been without my TV for nine days. Which means I've been without sports for nine days. And I have, it, listen, it has been, it feels like 999 days. Now, AT&T promises me through a text today that they will be at my house somewhere between 12 and 4 p.m., right? Yeah, right, good. Did you say good luck? Thanks, Ray. Appreciate that, right? But they're supposed to come. I've been waiting nine days. I have a 70-inch TV to watch sports on. And Jesus on, right? And it's been sitting dark for nine days. And I'll be honest with you, I'm tired of waiting. I'm really tired of waiting, right? Nine days. God promised at least 4,000. 
6,000, 8,000 years ago, he had a plan. Do you know how hard it is to wait for God when he has a plan and it takes thousands of years to accomplish? The entirety of the Old Testament is the story of God's plan coming together. It's a rough plan. It takes a lot to get through. Lots of people suffer. Lots of people die. Lots of people are involved in it. Lots of things happen. I don't know about you, but waiting nine days for internet to come back has been frustrating. Shoot, being the fourth car in line at McDonald's and waiting for my iced coffee is frustrating. Going to a restaurant and placing an order and wondering why it's taking a half hour to get your food. Frustrating, yes or no? You all know how frustrating it is. You see, here's the thing about the elemental principles of the world. They promise you immediate relief. If you do A, you get B. The problem with God's plan is it doesn't provide immediate relief. Sometimes you know what you have to do? You just have to wait. You just have to wait. And the thing about it is, as human beings, we are so ingrained in the process of the world, we don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. It's frustrating. And yet God says to Moses, wait 40 years. Wait 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep, and then I'll use you. Noah, build the boat and wait 120 years for rain to come in the middle of the desert. Jesus, the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Wait 30 years before you get to preach your first sermon. You see, the thing about God's plan is it requires us to wait and to trust. The plan of the world says, do this, get that. Do this, get that. If you do A, you get B. If you don't do this, you get this. Right? Don't taste. Don't touch. Don't handle. Don't observe this day. Don't do those things. And it says, immediate, knock on wood. Right? Throw salt over the shoulder. Right? Don't break a mirror. All those provide what? Immediate Relief. And the world's plan seems appealing for people who are impatient. And yet God says, if you just wait on me, I'll renew your strength. You'll walk and not be weary. You'll run and not be faint. You will soar with wings of eagles. But we're just not very good at the wait, are we? You see, God has a plan for every one of us. And sometimes that plan just takes a while. Sometimes that plan takes a while for it to come to fruition. And the temptation is to take a plan that has an immediate result. Just do it immediately. Listen, I don't know if you've ever watched a late night infomercial. You know what an infomercial is? Basically, an infomercial is a commercial that people couldn't play when normal people were up watching TV. So they play it at night for people who stay up late because they figure people who stay up late are prone to buy into the infomercial, right? And the infomercials are always selling these kind of things. Are you fat? Buy this pill. Your weight will come off. You don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to quit the way you eat. It'll just work immediately. And you know why they keep playing the infomercials? Because people keep what? Buying the pill. Why? Because people love immediate. And the world's plan is immediate. And God's plan requires waiting. The Bible says in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Part of me wants to say, well, it's about time, God. Why did it take 4,000, 6,000, 8,000 years for you to bring Jesus in the world? He could have gotten this done so much sooner. Have you ever wondered why God's waiting to bring Jesus back? Anybody? Yeah, why? I don't know. But I know this. God has a plan. And that plan requires trust and it requires waiting. The plan of the world, they promise immediate results. 
And so it's tempting for us to take control of our own destiny. But here's the thing about the end. The Bible says this in Galatians 4. The Holy Spirit also has a plan. So the world has a plan to get you in charge of your destiny. God has a plan. But that plan requires you to trust and to wait and to give up control. Right? Allow God to work on his timetable. Isaiah says God's ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts. Right? And as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways removed from us. Listen, it's a hard thing to wait on God and to trust in God. It's just a very difficult thing. But the Holy Spirit has a plan. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 6. He says, because you're sons of God, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. He said, so now you're no longer the slave, but you're a son. And since you're a son, God has made you what? An heir. Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 8. I'll just, let's just read what Paul wrote in this, in Romans 8. He said, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the what? Listen, if you're a believer today, you should be being controlled by the Spirit's direction, not by your own sinful nature. Like, listen, so your sinful nature wants to be angry. I can tell you the Holy Spirit doesn't want you to be angry. Your sinful nature wants to be arrogant and proud and judgmental and shake your head and look down your nose at people and think, think better. Listen, I can tell you this, the Holy Spirit doesn't want that. So the question is, which, which one is running the show today? Is it your sinful nature or is it the Holy Spirit? He says, you, however, controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. He says, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Jesus, listen to this, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Jesus, he does not belong to who? Listen, you are not a child of God until you have the Spirit of God, right? Everybody's a child of God based upon creation, having one father, but spiritually you're not a child of God until you have the spirit of God. He says, if anyone doesn't have, or, but if Christ is in you, that's, that's, yeah, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. He goes on, if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. He goes on to say this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also do what? Will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Who lives there? Isn't that a weird dynamic church that the Holy Spirit of God lives in a body that's dying and decaying? Anybody else? Yeah, it's a strange dynamic. Watching your body get older, watching your body suffer the consequences of sin. All the while, the Holy Spirit in you is alive and it's eternal. And here's what it says. Even though that outward body is decaying, at some point in time, I'm going to bring it back to life. Does that give any of you hope? Yeah. He says this. He goes on in, in verse 12. He says this. Therefore... Listen to the plan of the Spirit. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Listen, if the sinful nature wants to be angry, the Holy Spirit's plan is don't live by it. If the sinful nature wants to be arrogant, don't live by it. If the sinful nature wants to be haughty and judgmental, don't live by it. If the sinful nature wants to be undisciplined, Light and gluttonous and lazy, don't do it. He says, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. He says this, but if you live by the Spirit, right? If by the Spirit you put the death and misdeeds of the body, you will live. You'll experience life. You'll know what it means to have life. He goes on to say this in verse 14, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons and daughters of God. 
his children. He goes on to say this, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, right? Throw the salt over your back. Knock on wood. Don't have the black cat. Don't break the mirror. Don't open white. All that's based on the elemental principles of this fear. That if A happens, B's going to happen. He said the spirit didn't bring you into that bondage. He set you free from that. And if you receive the spirit of sonship, by that same spirit, we cry out what? Abba or Papa, right? In the Aramaic, right? Abba, Father. He says the spirit himself will testify with our spirit that we are God's children. If we're children, then we're what? We're heirs. And we're not heirs of money. We're not heirs of power. We're not heirs of property. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. He says, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Listen, the world has a plan. The plan is to enslave you. It's to enslave you in a process that you get to be in charge of and that you get to determine your own destiny. God has a plan. The problem with God's plan is it might take 6,000 years. It might take 30 years. It might take nine days. But it's going to require waiting and trusting. And the Holy Spirit has a plan. And that plan is to set you free from the bondage of that so that you can experience life as a child of God, an heir of God, and a co-heir of Jesus. There is no other gospel. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Let's thank you for the gospel. I'm just really, really grateful for the Holy Spirit that you have entrusted into our mortal bodies, bodies that are, are, are dying from sin. And yet we have the promise through your spirit that we're your children. We have the promise through your spirit that you will bring life again to our mortal bodies. So Father, for anybody who's watching online, anybody in here that's allowed themselves to be in bondage to this philosophy, this process that I'm in charge, that A equals B, Man, I pray for their conviction. I pray for their freedom. And most of all, Lord, I just thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.